recording. All right. So I am excited to introduce our guest today. Um, I'm personally kind of a fangirl. This is Andrea Slominski, PhD, also known as Dr. A. She's an author, a speaker, a women's midlife coach. Um, she's spoken at conferences, published articles, and coaches women to make the most of their emerging power years. Um, so that's 45 plus. She guides them through the triple transformations of midlife using tools including creativity, story, mythology, imagination, ceremony, and ritual. Her work is rooted in the principles of depth and archetypal psychology, and she inspires her clients to live their most authentic lives in service of the greater good. So, hi, Dr. A. Hello, hello, Crystal. How are you? Hi, Renee. So happy to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Good to have you. Um, this is one of my favorite topics, honestly. I've, I've thought about, I think, going to the same PhD program many times, at, if it's the same one at um, Santa Cruz. UC Santa Cruz, right? yeah. somewhere else, right? UC Santa Cruz used to have a really good Kimbellian program. But anyway, I would love to hear more about your work, how you got drawn to this specific work, how the, the academic career evolved into what you're doing with women and guiding them through their life stages. Um, but yeah, maybe you want to just introduce yourself a little more broadly than I did first, and we can go from there. Okay, sure. Um, okay, so a little bit about my journey, I guess. Um, I, uh, you know, was um, a director and a producer in live theater for over 20 years. I taught at the local community college for over nine years, produced and directed there. Uh, when the recession hit, I thought, hmm, this might be a good time to go get my master's because um, my course load was cut, as um, many people's were during that time. So uh, I at first went back to Cal State um, LA in their theater, film, and television blended MFA program, which was fantastic. And I went there for a year. And at the end of the first year, I was doing a film for the film class, and I was doing some research on Joseph Campbell, who's one of my favorites, always has been, um, looking for information on what Campbell had to say about the Grail Quest. And that led me to finding out that his entire private personal library is at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Carpinteria. And I was like, what? That's only like 45 minutes from where I live? Are you kidding me? Like his whole library? Oh, my gosh. So I then I went and looked a little bit more at the school and I was like, I was like a master's and PhD in, in mythological studies and depth psychology. What? So um, I went for a um, an introductory day to see what the school is about. And I never looked back. I just never looked back. I I think sometimes, you know, there are synchronicities in our lives that um, lead us to something new. And uh, I just uh, jumped ship and went right over to Pacifica, got my master's and PhD. Um, and I ended up going through my own midlife shift while I was in school. And that was what led me They They say you write your PhD about yourself. That's the trope, you know. And so that was kind of true for me. And I was really interested in uh, the history of um of goddess theology and um, matriarchy and matriarchal culture and the shift to patriarchy, which we've been suffering through for so many thousands of years. And so um, in studying that, I discovered, um, and I'm not the first person to talk about this or to discover it, it's not my only discovery, but for me, it was a big discovery that women who are boomers and late boomers and everyone coming up behind us, your generation and those following, are the first women in the history of humanity, I think about that, that's 300,000 years, in the history of humanity to live together as a cohort past menopause. In 1900, statistically, white women were dead by 51, women of color by 43. So we are living now into a new life stage for which there are no maps, there are no models, there's no road, there's, there's no road signs, right? And I mean, there've always been women who lived past menopause, even since Plato's time, but not entire generations. And so this is something really new. And women living past this menopausal midlife shift into something completely new where they can recreate themselves and which was what I was doing. So um, 
I ended up um, writing my dissertation on the emergence of this new life stage and it's um, uh, my argument was that women traditionally in mythology are seen as having uh, three life stages, maiden, mother, crone, right? Which was sort of popularized really in actually the 20th century. Um, and uh, I'm saying that with this new life stage, we now have a fourth stage that we have to add, which I call maiden, householder, regent, and wise woman. Because of course, the goddesses of mythology reflect the women of the culture. The women don't reflect the goddesses, right? So, um, yeah, so that's what I wrote about. And um, during my time at Pacifica, I created this really unique women's coaching program. That is what I do. And um, yeah, I haven't looked back and that's what I've been doing. So when I got the opportunity to come on here and talk about creativity and mythology and and personal mythos, like, oh, absolutely, absolutely. So that's kind of my story. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. So Joseph Campbell is not a name you typically associate with menopause or, or even women. Um, so I want to back up and ask you kind of how your relationship with Campbell evolves, you know, your intellectual relationship, how you were drawn to Joseph Campbell's work, and then how that kind of fed into working with women? Well, it's interesting, you know, Joseph Campbell um, has taken um, a beating in the past few years <laughs> in academia. And, um, you know, he was a man of his time. We are all born into a certain time. And I first discovered Campbell when he uh, really became popular through The Power of Myth, which was the program with Bill Moyers on PBS. And obviously I was considerably younger then. And I was just fascinated. Um, and it's interesting how in our personal myth, which we're talking about a little bit today, in the way we, our lives develop and our interests and our passions over time, when I was a young child, I was always fascinated by archaeology. <clears throat> I used to pour over all the old um, National Geographics that my grandfather had. And then there was the Tut exhibit and there was all the resurgence of Egyptian um, mythology, <clears throat> excuse me, in culture. And so that was how I got involved and interested in Campbell. And then when I was at school, we had a class on Campbell, but we also had classes with other mythologists and other um, depth psychologists. Marion Woodman um, is one, another one of my favorites. And there are a lot of different scholarly opinions about <clears throat> excuse me, about Campbell's work and um, how really the hero's journey is the male journey and the masculine journey. Maureen Murdoch wrote a great book called The, the Heroine's Journey. Mm -hmm. And so there's the been a lot of work post-Campbell about what the difference is for the for women's journey. And I think for me, Campbell's work uh, popularizing the idea of tapping into mythology as a guide or a roadmap for your own life and bringing those ancient archetypes and those ancient stories forward and seeing how those are some of the foundational stories to human psyche and how they still relate the, the processes and the pains and the joys and, and human life and how we deal with it are as consistent from ancient Greece as, as they are to now, or Celtic, or, or the Orishas, or whatever it is, whatever, you know, mythology you are attracted to. So, um, yeah, I, I, there's, there's a spot in my heart for, for Campbell, definitely, and um, I do enjoy reading his work, but I also enjoy reinterpreting um, the idea of personal myth for women, because we are living in a very different time. We live a very different embodied life as women than men do. And now we have this whole new, <coughs> I'm sorry, I have a, a dry dust Santa Clarita tickle. No worries. Um, a different embodied experience than men. And now we're living into this new stage, so. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you as far as, <coughs> It's unfortunate, I think, that that Campbell has taken so much of a beating in academia and even in popular culture a little bit because 
you know, academia to me is we stand on the shoulders of giants always, whether it's in academia or any other field. And, it, and no one has the last word, right? No one has the last word on, on truth. And so we can always take these, these theories, these ideas and adapt them and make them relevant to us. You know, it's not Joseph Campbell's fault that he was embodied in a, a white male body and whatever year he was, you know what I mean? Like, so I think, I think we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater, which seems to be a common theme on the podcast, Renee, um, is, is kind of. Yeah. Keeping- yeah, it's 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 a common theme in um in our culture, right? It's a common thing theme happening right now that uh, even like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because she didn't remove herself in time, now she's partially at fault for you know I don't want to talk politics, but even though she did uh, uh, this big long list of great things for any marginalized people, as even especially women, now she kind of gets a little bit erased because she didn't remove herself in time to replace herself, and was anyway. Um, so we want to just cancel her, right? And then we want to cancel, right. we want to tear down the statues. We want to if you're white slave hold, whatever. It's yeah. just such a cancel culture, but in creativity. Um, what we do is called accretion. Accretion is when we do stand on the shoulders of the people before us. And the fact that Joseph Campbell was a white man, yeah, okay, he, but he was bringing us thought forms that needed to be brought forth um, to connect us to those eras, because that's creativity too, that, that, that our humanity connects us and those stories and those myths and those narratives, all those archetypes, have been going on right since day one and if we don't see that then we can't learn from that and we can't build upon that Mm -hmm. so even our technology can go forth but then where's our humanity so he had to he had to bring that and that's where creativity comes in is that we build like a big collage culture is just a big collage we just keep adding to it we don't rip off the stuff underneath because we can't exactly. we be where we are if we didn't go through being slave owners or if we didn't go through the changes that Ruth brought or if Joseph Campbell didn't, if he wasn't a man in a white man's, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the last things that he popularized or, or that's well known is is when the, the um, astronauts took the first picture of earth from space looking back from the moon it's called the blue marble that image that first image and he basically said the new myth because myths always change have always changed and and as cultures have changed throughout human history the new myth is going to be one for the whole planet not for this people or that people for this country or that country but for the entire planet and for everyone and everything living on it and i think that's really the paradigm shift that so many people are working towards now in terms of making life sustainable and equitable and uh, worth living for everyone, you know, on the planet. So, you know, he, he, he always, he knew he didn't have the last word. And, you know, one of his contemporaries, Carl Jung, you know, he wasn't the first person to talk about archetypes, but certainly his work more brought it to the forefront, or if you want to call it popularized it. But there are many psychologists who who came after Jung, you know, and it's very popular now in, in some, some, you know, um, circles to throw Jung under the bus too. So, you know, <laughs> it just, you know, you know, for, if there was no Jung, there would have been no, you know, um, James Hillman. If there was no Jung, there would have been no Marion Woodman. If there was, you know, no Jung, there would have been no um, Maureen, um, um, Murdoch. 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 Yeah. Marine Murdoch. Yeah. So, you know, as Renee said, it's, it's the, it's, it's, it's like the, um, um, what are those pictures called that just go eternally and you keep getting deeper and deeper into them? Um, fractals. It's like the fractal of developing, you know, culture, consciousness, mythology. It's all creativity because it all one thing, you know, leads to the next. Yeah. And I think I love that we kind of got into this kind of side topic because I think the threat here, the threat is not only that we eradicate our roots as human beings. So whatever our gender, whatever our background, whatever our race, we are, we, we share these roots, which, which the archetypes point to. Right. And so on an existential level, we leave ourselves kind of in this postmodern void of meaninglessness when we do that, when we kind of like cut off our feet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that I think contributes to a lot of of like I could even say psychological issues not only social but psychological issues is that we don't feel a connection to our roots and to our past and to our, our basic humanity, which is illustrated by the psyche, the subconscious and the psyche. And, and it's kind of ironic that, um, you know, we, we want to cancel the people who brought that theory to the forefront um, because that act of canceling a little bit is like canceling our, our psyche, our inner journey. Right. Yeah. So that's really yeah. interesting. Everybody wants to talk about their shadow, but nobody wants to talk about where that came from. <laughs> right. Totally, totally. Crystal, that's so well well said. And I'm really, really grateful in my heart of hearts that it came from you, a young person, right, who is in the midst of all of this, but still has some kind of um, grounding, to use your metaphor, some roots and some some feet <laughs> so you you're you're right there with everybody else who wants to go to that far extreme this dichotomous you know this or that um you know the, 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 the just the whole dichotomous way of thinking and so you understand it and yet you're saying it could be dangerous for us psychologically and cause a lot of anxiety to think that we're just floating around in the universe without any you know any meaning making function yeah Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We, it, the, I always call it the postmodern void. And I could, I mean, really dive into that from like uh, an academic perspective, but I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. But I, I have a quote by Young um, that I would like to, since we're talking about it, it's really on the point. So he says, we are facing in the modern world, quote, the most ticklish problem of a civilization that has forgotten why man's life should be sacrificial that is offered up to an idea greater than man man can live amazing things if they make sense to him but the difficulty is to create that sense it must be a conviction naturally but you find that the most convincing things man can invent are cheap and ready-made and never able to convince him against his personal desires and fear so essentially what he's saying is that when we get rid of our roots when we get rid of the mythological framework that that shapes us into humans, you know, that has birthed us into humans. We, all we have is, is manufactured goods. Basically we have means, we have sound bites, we have, you know, we have empty images that don't feed our souls. And so on, you know, that creates an anxiety in us because we've cut off our roots. Right. Exactly. Well, he also said, um, and there's this great quote, you can find it on YouTube. If I'd known you were going to bring up that one, I would have, I would have, uh, gotten the link up so people could see it but um where he talks about the fact that man meaning humanity right humanity has always lived in the myth has always lived in within some sort of mythos right some sort of cultural structure and that to try to live as as humanity now or in the future with no myth and no tie to history is a dismemberment right dismemberment Perfect. It's like living okay. without your eyes or your ears, or it's, it's, it's completely unnatural in the yeah. sense that it doesn't, it doesn't tie you to everything from the, um, you know, a myth there, there's the four functions of myth as Campbell described it. And, and, you know, the first is to stand before the awe of the great mystery, you know, you, you stand and you look at the moon or you're out in the desert and you see the Milky Way or you see all the stars at night and you're like, oh my gosh. Or even these new pictures that just came out from, from the new telescope and you look at the cosmos and it's so huge and so magnificent and so beautiful and it's such a mystery and you're just in awe of it. And that's the first thing that mythology does is allows you to approach that mystery in awe. And the second one, is that it puts it into a form. It tells you, the mythology tells you how the universe was formed, what it means, who formed it, what your part in that is, right? And then the third function is it creates a society where we say, okay, how are we going to live as people under this myth in, in this system of understanding of how the cosmos was formed and our place in it? What are the rights and wrongs? What are the laws? What are the morals? What's that? And then the fourth one is that the myth has within it everything that the individual needs to grow and develop through a lifetime from birth to death. Mm -hmm. 
And so to, to, to live without something that, that gives a container within which you can grow and, and learn and discover your own meaning-making function, your own personal narrative, which is your, your myth, right? And not everyone, everyone is born into a myth, but not everyone resonates with the myth they're born into. The myth, meaning mythology, not meaning myth as a lie, meaning myth as mythology. And so sometimes, you know, people will will reject one mythology and adopt another. Sometimes people will cobble together something from a lot of different places, you know, depending on, on what speaks to them. But um, yeah, to um, to just be in a universe, a meaningless universe um, with no structure, no function, no form, no foundation, and no no um, no plan, no path, no relationship. Really, it all comes down to relationship. You know, with yeah. no relationship is terrifying. Yeah, I like to call it a spiritual lobotomy. Yeah, um, that's how I think of it, and and I think that the myth or the reintegration of myth is like a soul map. Like you're saying, it gives us. Um, a path, a, a dharma, if you will, in Sanskrit. Yes, and yeah, so, that's a great word for it, sure. So um, I want to bring it back down to earth because Renee and I tend to do this and get very theoretical, which I love, but I'd love to hear more about how you're, you're enacting this in your work with women. Oh, okay. All right, great. So um, in uh, what I do with um, what I call my coaching method is the heroine's path, right? It's the path. And um, what I do is um, I do bring it down. We, we do do some, you know, out there stuff, you know, in terms of theory and, and big ideas, but we do bring it down into the individual women's lives. Generally, I work with women who are between, say, 40 and 70. And what we do is we start by saying, okay, what's going on? You know, why are you looking for a coach? What's, what's happening, you know? And my specialty is to help women realize that in the 25 years, this new life stage, I call it Regency, because it's a time when we can have sovereignty, we can rule, right? We can make decisions for ourselves. A regent is someone who rules in someone else's stead. And in my belief, in the Regency years from about 40 to 70, um, we're holding the space for our wise woman to come while we fully, fully become our most authentic, soulful selves. So um, basically, I look at three transformations that happen in this 25-year period. One is physical, one is psychological, and one is spiritual. And you cannot um, address one without snagging the others. <laughs> They're woven together like a tapestry. And what happens in our culture is the doctors, the physicians, want to treat the physical, right? And the therapists want to treat the psychological and never the twain shall meet. Right. And then the pastor or, <clears throat> or whoever it is for the spiritual, there's just no meeting in, in these things. Everybody's looking at them as separate things. And that is, I think the huge problem that women are encountering in this time of life is that no one's looking at the whole thing. So some women, you know, don't have problems with the, the physical perimenopause, menopause. Other women are buried by it, right? Some women have more problems with the midlife psychological meaning shift. <clears throat> so it really depends. And I say, okay, what's going on? You know, where are you? And we really start by firmly establishing where they are in their life, in their mind, in their relationships, in their feelings about themselves and all three aspects of, of what's changing in their lives. Then we look back and we say, okay, how did you get here? Let's look back at the path you walked, right? That part of your personal journey, your personal myth, like how did you get here? And we look at some things that, that go back to early assumptions from childhood. We look at some things that are more current um, choices that we've made, right? Because right? We wouldn't be here if we didn't make all the choices that we've made. And once we establish those things, then we can say, okay, now we know how we got here. We know where we are. Now we can turn and look to the other horizon and say, okay, where do we want to go? Right? And so after we look to the horizon, where do we want to go? Then we work on putting together a, an actionable plan, 
a template, right, of how to get where they want to go. So in within all this, right, our journaling pages, um, mandala work, um, ritual work, um, you know, working, you know, with a particular, each person might come up with a, a ritual type, um, a personal ritual for, say, getting ready to write, getting ready to journal, getting ready to sit down and really think about themselves and their lives, right? So there's all different tools that I have in my toolbox that I use. And of course, you might call them deliverables, right? In, in terms of talking about the program. But, um, and then we spend, of course, before COVID, if you could see behind me, right, there's my office, right? Spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with people in my office. Now, I would say the yeah, the majority, almost all of my work is virtual now because people have gotten used to it and they're comfortable with it. And um, and so, you know, that's changed a little bit. I, I love working one-on-one -on -one to be able to see, you know, be in the room with the person, but that's that has not been, you know, uh, possible. So that's that that's kind of how we do it. And so by the time we get to the point where we're putting together an actionable plan, they actually have, I, I kind of think of it as a 3D map, right? Where they can see where they came from and then they can see their journey. And with the stories that they developed about themselves, that they were told about themselves, that they learned about themselves through the choices that they made, right? All of the things that they've done in their lives, you can start to see what, what I would call then your personal myth, right? Which comes from the work of Dennis Slattery. And so in understanding and developing your personal myth and looking back at where you've come from and then where you are, we find what mythology really lights you up. Like if I was working with you, Crystal, I might say, okay, like if you had to pick a myth that you, a mythos that you're most interested in, is it like, is it like the Hindu mythology, right? Is it, is it the Chinese Buddhist mythology? Is it, um, you know, is it, uh, diaspora African religions mythology? Is it Celtic? Finding out what really, or, or it might be the one you grew up in. It might be the Christian mythology. It might be the Hebrew mythology, whatever it is. And so then we work with the stories and the myths that are within what resonates with you to find the stories that actually show you that you're living these archetypal stories. You're having a personal experience of a universal rite of passage. And it opens up a perspective to where you realize that you're a part, you're a sentence, a chapter, a book, whatever, in this huge story. And you're not alone, but you're completely connected to everything. And it, so it just opens up a different way of looking at what's happening and, and moving forward through this period of change because the Regency 25 years, you'll change as much from 45 to 70 as you did in your first 25 years. And your first 25 are about physical growth, right? The markers of growing and learning and going to school and how good you were at sports and how your studies coming and how tall are you? It's all physical markers, right? And the Regency 25 is about soul growth. And so it's just, and it's pre-programmed. It's pre-programmed into your body. It's pre-programmed into your psyche. And it's pre-programmed into your spiritual understanding of who you are and what matters now, how your meaning-making function changes as you age. And if it doesn't, then you're not growing. You're not developing you're holding yourself back. Can I make a parallel? Please. Uh, you guys can help me. I'll just start it off. I'll start off the parallel. We talked about um, cutting off our roots and our legs and just drifting around in the universe and having you know, no, no roots and how that causes a lot of anxiety. And so I'm seeing a correlation between where we've been in, as an individual where we've been as an individual, where we're going, I mean, where we are, how we got here, and then making the plan of where we're going to be. And I'm seeing that not only is it true for the micro, right, for the individual woman or person going through midlife or menopause, 
or adolescence or whatever ritual rite of passage, but I'm seeing it as, you know, like Freud's capitulation theory that we, as, a, as the human race, as, the, as human species, we have a narrative as well. And where have we been? And where are we now? And where are we going? And if we cut off our roots and we don't, and if we ignore where we've been, and we just say where we are now here, where are we going to end up? Yeah. Yeah. We're do, it's like, <laughs> I don't know, a video game metaphor is coming to mind. It's like spawning in the middle of a, of a world with no context, right? That's con being contextless, which if you think about, you know, child development, we need, we need the story. We need boundaries. We need to understand, like, what if children just showed up and they didn't have, you know, their elders to show them the way, which I think is another point of what you made, Andrea. Um, it's not just the woman's, the, the internal journey, but it's also, we've deprived ourselves as a culture of the wisdom of that phase of life, because we're not, you know, sitting at the feet of, of wise women and learning from them, from their experiences. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure you know that historically women have been the storytellers and the story keepers mm -hmm. and the culture keepers, essentially. So maybe you can speak to that a bit. Yeah, I mean, historically, looking back, um, you know, before we had the advent of writing and all those, of course, we had the bards and we had the storytellers. And it was historically the women who told the tales, you know, at around the uh, whatever they were doing, whether they were, you know, hoeing, whether they were gathering and 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 tending, whether they were planting. Um, even still now, you can see in places like um, in Scotland, where there are still farms that grow the sheep and shear the sheep and clean the wool and card the wool and and do all that and spin the wool to make the yarn to you know to weave the kilt or whatever there or, or the sweater whatever there are ancient ancient songs that they yeah. still sing while they do it you yeah. know and and it and it keeps the it keeps the rhythm going but they're the cultural songs that tell the tales of everything from the young girl, you know, falling in love with the man to the woman and to the family and to the history and to, and to the idea of, you know, how the planting and growing and all of these things actually, you know, happen and work. And not only that, if we, if we look at the history of healthcare, right, or the history of care, we have midwifery, right, and the wise women who were wise in herb lore, who were the healers, right, you know, traditionally all throughout culture, um, women were the healers, they were the oracles, they were the soothsayers, they were the, um, the medicine women, you know, and that's not to say there weren't medicine men, I'm not saying that, but as, as to the keeper of the story, the keeper of the lore that's passed down from one generation to another, um, everything, fairy tales, um, folk tales, uh, mythologies, all of those things. I mean, Marija Gimbutas, who um, is very famous for her work on the goddess and her work in um, the Kurgan uh, steeps of Asia in the uh, Neolithic and pre-Neolithic times, she was actually raised in um, Lithuania, I believe it was, and she spent a good deal of her time, her early um, time at university, documenting and going out into the villages and recording and documenting all of these ancient songs and folk tales that had been for hundreds of years, you know, passed down from woman to woman to woman to woman in terms of cultures. So, um, yeah, I mean, all of that, the need for storytelling, the need for that connection, the need for the, um, the archetypal experience of the mother, the good mother, or even the bad mother, the terrifying mother, you know, the one that the terrifying mother in the, in the Hansel and Gretel, the one who cooks the children, all of those tales, um, all speak to experiences and they also taught cultural lessons, right. At the time. So, yeah, I mean, myth, fairy tale, folk tale, stories, personal myth, 
personal narrative, you know, this all taps back in. And, and even on the physical sense, I know Renee and I've talked about this a couple of times, you know, we are the daughters, right, of, of the ancient mothers, mothers who had daughters, who became mothers, who had daughters, who became mothers, who had daughters. And so it goes goes back and back and back and back really to mitochondrial Eve if we wanna if we wanna get really hinky about it. So um yeah the history the, that that lost history that lost mythos which is the connection you know to to your roots right um is really really important and and there are people who you know are are born into say you know our western you know global north Christianized, you know, Judeo-Christian, quote unquote, culture, um, who don't resonate, you know, with that myth, and who find something else that resonates more with their soul. It doesn't, any myth will take you back to its source, right? And that's the main thing. Any myth will take you back to its source. Um, So, Yeah, I just, you know, the history of, of women and, and storytelling and and culture is is a huge and long one, going all the way back to the time when God was a woman for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, until, as a matter of fact, I was just reading, where is it? Oh, I was just reading a fascinating book um, called The Creation of Patriarchy. And it, and it talks about how, um, cause everybody's always talking about smash the patriarchy and yeah, it's a great idea, but it, 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 it developed over 2,500 years and it's so, um, we are the fish swimming in the water of patriarchy, right? And we can't change the water, but we can only change how we respond to the system that we are living in. No one person no one people group is patriarchy, right? But we are all within it. So in order to change it, we then have to be very conscious about all the choices we make in the way we interact with the system, right? Absolutely. And and ask ourselves the question, what do we want to create in the wake of, you know, the, the chaos or the destruction of the patriarchy? What do we want to build And, and back to Renee's idea of the parallel, there's... Um, uh, Richard Tarnas has come out with a really interesting film where he talks about um, these um, astrological returns in terms of these huge cycles, right? And, and you might think of it as like the Kali Yuga and, and the different huge cycles of humanity and, <clears throat> and what happens within these cycles and how they affect um, human behavior and human culture. And I know another scholar who's been working for a number of years, Catherine McKayev, on the idea of how these cycles um, cycle from, from the uh, fully feminine to the fully masculine, to the fully feminine, to the fully masculine in terms of culture, and how what we have yet to do is get that hieros gamos, that sacred marriage, that yin-yang balance, right? that it can't be all one or all the other, or we're not going, we're going to keep that same cycle that Renee is talking about. It's going to keep going until we can find a way to, to uh, find, to bring a balance. Sure. Yeah. And we even see that echoed in, in the cultural swings, you know, this pendulum swing from, you know, right wing to left wing to, you know, whatever it may be, the changing of the guards, the, you know, canceling of this and the embracing of that. So um, you know, I have about a hundred more questions to ask you and, and we're at 45 minutes. So I want to transition into a meditation. Um, and we'll definitely have to have you back to talk more about this. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It, it goes really, really fast. And, um, it's really tricky to be able to, um, like reiterate some of the things that we talked about, but the neat thing is when we do go into a meditation right after this academic um, intellectual, political, all these feelings and, you know, historical, it really is a beautiful thing to end up in a meditation 
where we can just sit with it for a minute and then reframe it with where we are right now with the hope of where we want to be. So uh, this is like my favorite part. I love when you do this. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up because, you know, the meditation is, is meant to integrate what we're, what we're talking about. It's also meant to process. It's to give us the chance to digest, not intellectually, but bring it down into our reality, our lived reality, our embodied reality, which get it out of your head and into your body. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what we're talking about. You know, not separating the self, not chopping it up into little bits, but, um, but embracing the messiness of being a human being in a body. Um, so with, without further ado, if you guys could mute yourselves, um, you can, you can leave your screen on if you want, or you could, uh, you can shut off your video and I'll go ahead and, and lead us in meditation. So make sure to meet yourself too. And let's go ahead and take a deep breath, exhale, relax, become aware of the body, become aware of any holding or tension in the body. And there's no need to force the body to relax or let go. You can let go to whatever extent feels doable right now, and then simply be with whatever remains. So rather than trying to change your bodily state, allow your bodily state to speak to you to inform you and communicate with you. Be open to receiving the messages of the body rather than trying to fix them. And as we go into this meditation, I want to invoke the idea of our shared mythology. So as one example that I've always found really moving. Nearly every mythological framework, every what you might call pantheon or, you know, cultural narrative has a, a story of the flood and the origins of our beginnings. So whether it's Hindu, African, Judeo-Christian, the story of the flood, just, just one example, exists in, in countless different forms across cultures. And similarly, we can trace the etymology of, of many of our words especially the word father, mother. So we have Vater in German, father in English, Padre in Spanish, et cetera. These, this etymology can be traced back as well. Shared etymology that, that spans cultures with small shifts and variations from region to region. So as we get into into contact with the fact that we share this common origin, both in the psyche and in our physical origins. We can have a felt sense of interconnection, no matter what culture we come from, what ethnicity we identify with, what race we identify with. We can feel the support of the web of the shared mythos as an existential map to our humanity. So continuing to bring the attention and the awareness to 
the felt sensations in the body. The experience of embodiment in this time and space, this unique time and space that will never occur again. That in one sense is a simple blip on the radar of the entire tapestry of the human story. And in another equally true sense is the only moment there is. Honoring the experience of being you in a body in this moment. Simply by turning the attention to that embodied experience. as you focus on the entire body, you can hone the attention into the breath. Let the rhythm of the breath constantly draw you back to the present moment. Feeling the rise of the chest and belly on the inhalation. Feeling the gentle fall of the chest and belly on the exhalation. As well as that moment of stillness in between. And how can the messages of the body in this moment in time inform our journey? This body that is made up of the cells of our ancestors. This body that if it, if we have a body with ovaries, we carry the eggs that were also carried in the body of our mothers and grandmother and great grandmother. This body that carries us into the world as yet another expression of that lineage, that history. And the personal and collective mythology of all the identities, all the progenitors, of who we are now. Always bring the awareness back to the breath.
back to the life force. Infusing the body in this present moment. Enriching and enlivening the body. Fueling and animating the body. The creative force. And it's always accessible to us. All day, every day. And then begin to expand the awareness beyond the body into the room that you're in. The building that you're in. The neighborhood, the geographical space that you're in. until you can sense yourself simultaneously in the space that you're in and the universe at large. And then focusing on your body against the seat that you're resting on. The sensation of the ground or your chair against your thighs, your sits bones. The sensation of the air against your skin. The sensation of the muscles holding your body up and the weight of the body and the pull of gravity pressing you into the earth. And as you're ready, you can look away from your screen, gently open the eyes and come back Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. A. It was a pleasure to have you. Hope you're muted. Unmute yourself, Andrea. Hello. <laughs> I said it was my pleasure to be with you two ladies and talk myth and creativity and, you know, um, anytime. Just happy to be here and share ideas with you. It feels so good to unite on that level. And um, it, we've only scratched the surface. Thank Absolutely. you guys. Yeah. Take care. Love you. Namaste. Bye. Bye.